Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Brothers and sisters, it is no surprise to any of you that the book that you have in your hand and the book that I have here that I've read from this evening is indeed the Word of God. It is an incredible blessing. If you are in the Lord, you understand these words. It is an incredible blessing to our hearts that the God of all the universe, the God that is above all, the God who has no beginning and who has no end, was pleased to reveal himself and his word to your soul and mine through this book that he has providentially preserved through the ages. And within this book, we have an Old Testament and a New. We've been working our way through the Old, and we've also been working our way through the New in several portions of the New and we know that there are the Gospels in the New Testament. These are, these are books that speak to the, the earthly ministry of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is to have four such Gospels. We have Matthew, and we have Mark, and we have Luke, and we have, we have John. Each of the Gospels is uniquely written by a different author, inspired by the Spirit of God to produce the final result, which is the Word of God. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know as the synoptic gospels. That comes from the same word, root word, as synonym, the same. Because much of the content in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, much of the content is, is found one with the other. Very similar com- content. Although, having said that, they are not exactly the same. Because as I said earlier, different authors wrote these books under inspiration of the Spirit. So they did have different perspectives and different emphases on the book. And all we are all the more richer for it. But then you have the gospel according to John. And we've been working our way through the gospel according to John for four and a half years thus far. And the gospel according to John stands on its own, not in inspiration, but in uniqueness. Because the gospel according to John is unique in so many of its aspects. Much of what is contained in the gospel of John, the fourth gospel in your Bibles, is unique to the gospel according to John. And as we've worked our way through the gospel, in particular when we began earlier, around four years or four and a half years ago, I labored to show you some of the key differences that make the gospel according to John unique in and of itself in relation to the gospel of John in relation to the other synoptic gospels. In, in John, for example, we have unique accounts and unique narratives that are not found in the synoptic gospels. Out of all the, the wonders and the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed, or the, the many that we have recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, in, in John, the gospel, according to John, the, the apostle has chosen to record only seven such miracles. And from the seven, five are unique to this gospel. What else is unique in this gospel? What else is unique is the great I am statements from the mouth of our Lord. Seven of such. And in fact, if we look at the content of what Jesus is, is explaining and teaching as he, as he directs the attention of the crowd to himself when he declares I am, a lot of that teaching is actually found within the rest of the New Testament. But the I am statements are unique to the gospel according to John. 
There are many narratives and we can go on and on, but I know that you get the point. But the point I'm trying to make is there's a reason. There is a reason why, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John has recorded some details for us in the gospel that bears his name and not others. Some miracles and not others. Some narratives and not others. From his own mouth, in the last verse of this gospel, John himself says that if he was going to record all that Jesus said and did, all the books in the world could not contain them. Last verse of the Gospel of John. Under inspiration of the Spirit, the content that we find that fills this book, this book called John, it's there for a reason. 21 chapters, and the Spirit of God carried John to write and to author what we have before us in the great I Am statements, in the miracles that he's recorded, in the narratives and the events that are here and may not be anywhere else. And I submit to you, primarily on the Apostle's mind, in so far as the purpose, there are many, but I think primary among the purpose in his heart, from what we can see, that he intends his reader to see and to understand and to acknowledge as you and I and throughout all the ages we read this fourth gospel is he wants you to acknowledge. He wants to convince your heart that this Jesus that he speaks of is no mere man. He's no no mere man. Jesus is not simply a, a wise sage speaking pithy sayings. He's not merely a good man who, who's shown people how to live his life and just do what I say and do what I do and you'll live a, a, your best life. You'll live a meaningful life. And he's not merely a prophet, merely a mouthpiece or an instrument to speak the words of God. The Gospel of John and, and John himself, he labors to bear, to, to, to have in the book that bears his name to portray and to reveal that Jesus is divine. You see, Jesus Christ is divine. He's more than a mere man. He is the God-man. Why, well, he said, has said as, as much, hasn't he? The purpose statement that we've gone into so many times. If you need to know the purpose statement for which uh, the, the Apostle John, why he, he wrote this gospel, he actually reveals that to us. If you remember, and we've gone there many times, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Let me read it to you. There the, the Apostle John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the one that Israel had been anticipating for centuries has come. The anointed of God. He has, he has come. He has come. And John is saying, He is the Son of God. You read about Him in the Old Testament. It was pointing to this Messiah to come. And I'm here to declare to you that this Christ has come and He is the Son of God. One with, in essence, with God. One in being with God. This Jesus is God. And you need to believe in this Jesus. That's what the Apostle John is saying. 
You need to, you need to believe in this, in this Jesus. Because this Jesus is God. Brethren, you know as well as I, if you've been evangelizing in the streets or your friends or your neighbors or your colleagues and, and they're refuting you and they're, they're trying to say, no, 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 Jesus is not God. How many times have you heard that? Prove to me that Jesus is God. Take them to the gospel according to John. All the, all the New Testament proves and testifies that Jesus is God. Don't get me wrong, but, but almost every page in the gospel according to John, almost every word, every teaching, every claim of our Lord in the gospel according to John speaks to the deity the godness of Jesus Christ takes them there because without effort, there's evidence on every single page that Jesus is indeed God. He's divine. Such a glorious truth. Such an essential truth. Your salvation and mine is rooted upon this Jesus being God in flesh. If Jesus is not God in flesh, this activity that we're doing is completely meaningless. You can believe a lot of things. Or you cannot believe a lot of things. It's probably a better way of saying it, but if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're believing in another Jesus altogether. Because the Jesus of the Bible is Deity is divine. He is the God-man. Praise be to his name. This is an amazing truth. It is a glorious truth. But let me submit to you, that's where you stop. If that's where your understanding of Jesus comes to an end, you're selling yourself short. Because as essential it is, as it is to, to believe and to, to acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ for your salvation and mine, as I said earlier, it is absolutely necessary to believe that he is divine, truly God and truly man, that he is flesh and blood, but he's also God. But it's just as essential that you and I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is truly man as well. That he's a man, that he's, he's a man, that, that he's human just like you and I. He has a real body and he has a real soul. That he's both truly God and he's, he's truly, truly man. It's true from the onset, the apostle, the, the apostle John, from the very onset, is, is trying to show the world and reveal and persuade all who read this gospel that Jesus is indeed God, that he's, he's the eternal God and, and on display is the only true God who became who became man. But also what we find in this gospel indeed is that this Jesus is not only 100% fully God, but he is also fully man. And we as Christians need to acknowledge both truths, beloved. It is essential that we acknowledge both truths. And this is incredible, that God became flesh. In the first in the first first book in the prologue uh, the apostle john wants to make you aware of what this book is going to be about when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and before you know it you you get an indication of where, where john is taking us with this book right you, you get an indication where he's taking us in this book but then you go down to verse 14 and you hear and the word became flesh and dwelt among us Yes, he is the eternal God, but the eternal God became flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is so incredible to the mind. That the divine took on humanity. Hear this. That the creator became a creature. 
I'm going to say that again. Because it shouldn't move you, it moves me. The Creator became a creature. And He actually shared in our humanity. He actually became fully intimate with the human experience. And still is. Yet without sin. God truly became man in every way. I think one of the clearest texts where you see the two natures on display so beautifully in such balance in the one person of Jesus Christ, in such close proximity with each other. That's not the natures. I'm saying the text is here in John chapter 11. Because in one breath you hear Jesus say these words, I am I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone or everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Have you ever heard more grander statement from the Son of God himself? Who else can claim to be life? Who else can claim to be the definite alcohol, the resurrection, the life? No life apart from me, Jesus is saying. I'm the essence, I'm the substance, I'm the fountain, I'm the source of life. These are words spoken either by God or a band or a madman. God in flesh with the same breath. And then in the next breath, not far away from where he says this, we read, Jesus wept. I am the resurrection and the life. And then, and then a few verses later, Jesus wept. Do you generally associate weeping with God himself? Does this not blow your mind? I was going to say, does it stretch your mind? But your mind and mine can't be stretched far enough to fathom the fullness of those words. But if you answered yes, it does indeed blow your mind. I'm glad it does because it's meant to. It's meant to leave us in awe and in wonder. It's meant to leave you and I on our knees in worship of this great God who became flesh. We continue from last week. That was just an intro. Last week we left off and Jesus had had a quiet moment with Martha. Quite in the sense that his disciples were with him. He's now at the outskirts of a place called Bethany. Not very far from Jerusalem, maybe 25, 30 minutes away. Upon hearing that he'd come, Martha came to Jesus on her own and she had an intimate moment with Jesus, with the disciples possibly in the background. She had a broken heart. She, she was sorrowful. She was grieving. She was afflicted at the loss of her brother who had been dead and buried for some four days. And Jesus gives her exactly what she needs. He knows what his sheep need. She's in pain. She's hurting. And she, uh, when he says to her the wonderful news that your brother Lazarus will rise again, she, she forsook that too, or she thought that to be talking about the, the final resurrection, the general resurrection in the last day. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your hope ought not to be in, a, in an event that takes place in the future. 
put your hope in me. And then he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Pointing her to himself. Your hope ought to be in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And then we're told, verse 28, that Martha departs from there after Jesus asks her if, if she believes. And you remember what she responded, that beautiful, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And it ends there. We don't know what took place. After that, there's no response from the Lord Jesus himself. But then we're, gone, we, we're taken to verse 28, and we're told after these things, Martha then goes to Bethany, back to the home. We don't know how far they are, but she goes back into the village, back into the town, and she goes there to, to bring her sister to come back and speak to the Lord. She says, the Lord, she says, or oh, the teacher is, is wanting, he's calling you to come and to to come to him. No doubt Martha knew that her sister would benefit immensely. She had just benefited immensely. Who doesn't benefit when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ? God in flesh. She had a few moments spent with Jesus in intimate moments where her her soul was enriched and and no doubt she wanted the same for for her sister. So she goes and she, she calls for Mary and says, Mary, come. The teacher has, has called you, come. But we're told here, interestingly, that she says it privately or, or, or secretly, maybe some of your translations can only, that she didn't want anyone else to know. So she's gone back into a home where Mary was and all the other Jews and the people there consoling her, a, a number, we don't know how many, but there's many, the, the Apostle John says. So there's a good number and she goes back and she probably whispers in her ear because she doesn't want anyone else, anyone else to know. Why is that? I don't know. I really don't know. I can speculate. Could be that it's not a stretch to think that, that Martha knows that it wasn't that long ago that Jesus was in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem Jews, the, in particular the, the, the religious establishment, had stones in their hand ready to stone the Lord. And that's the very reason why Jesus departed from there, went across the Jordan River to get some peace away from the heat that was taking place in Jerusalem. The Apostle John has already told us that in their home, that where they're mourning, there were Jews. And normally in the, in the book of John, when you hear that terminology, that designation, Jews, he's normally referring to the religious leaders because he does call others crowds and peoples, but when he speaks to Jews. So it's very likely, can't be sure, it's very likely that the Jews that were there consoling Mary and Martha who knew Lazarus because this seemed to be a family of prestige, a family of means, and it's very likely that some of the Jews were either the, some of the religious leaders or they had an affiliation with some of the religious leaders. I know that for sure because as we continue to read, they go and they tell the Pharisees of what had taken place. But that's a sermon for another day. So is it possible that, that, that Martha had known that, that Jesus was number one on the hit list of the Jews and she didn't want to make a scene, didn't want anyone to know? As I said, it could be, but I don't know. I can't be sure, but I know this. <laughs> Either way, that plan doesn't work if that was the plan. Because the secret doesn't stay a secret for very long. Because when Mary hears from the lips of Martha that Jesus is here and he's calling to see her, calling to speak to her, then she immediately immediately rises from her seat and she immediately hastily goes out of the home and goes towards the Lord. And all the other Jews that are in the home follow her. 
Why? Because we're told they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep and to mourn. So they wanted to, to follow her, maybe to support her, maybe to weep and mourn with her. But take note. How did Martha address Jesus to Mary? Have a look at your Bibles. You tell me. How did Martha address Jesus to Mary? Teacher. We know that his family was intimate with Jesus. We know they had a very strong relationship. Even when they called Jesus about Lazarus, said the one you love is ill. So there was an intimacy with his family. On previous occasions, like in the previous five or ten minutes that she spent with the Lord, on two occasions, she refers to Jesus as Lord. Remember, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yes, Lord, when asked, do you believe? Yes, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of God the one coming into the world. She's addressed Jesus as Lord on two occasions and the addressing of Lord is kurios, master, or it could be God himself because that is the, the, the designation given to God, Yahweh, the tetra, grammaton. And it could be that. But why is it now when she goes to call her sister, she doesn't say Jesus has come, but the teacher. The instructor in the Greek. The teacher has come. That's interesting. Do you think perhaps... That the moments that she spent with the Lord, her heart was so taught by his profound truths. That Martha felt that Mary needs to hear these truths. That she so desired that her sister who is weeping, who is grieving, who is in the same sorrow as herself, that she comes and meet with Jesus because whatever Jesus said to her has taught her heart because Jesus knows what his sheep needs. No doubt Martha has departed from the presence of the Lord much richer as a result of the teaching of the sublime truths that Jesus taught her heart when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. Don't look over there. Don't look for an event. Look to me. I, I am, I am, I am. Look to me, Martha. A truth that she could anchor her hope upon. Martha needed to hear that, beloved. Jesus knew what Martha needed. Jesus is a good shepherd. He knows how to feed his sheep. No doubt Martha recognizes this and she wants her grieving sister to be comforted by the same teacher. By the one who speaks the word of God. The one who speaks words of consolation. Unlike the empty talk you get when people come and pat you on the back and say, she'll be right, mate. Jesus doesn't speak empty words. There's no guarantee that she'll be right. And I know we're well intended. But the fact of the matter is, God's people want to hear truth. And truth that points their eyes back to Jesus. Because Jesus alone is in whom we anchor our hope, our trust, our security, our comfort, our rest. Only, only in Christ. But here's the interesting thing. The encounter Jesus has with Mary, she comes and she throws herself at his feet. It's quite often you'll see. This Mary is at the feet of the Lord. That's a wonderful posture. To be at the feet of one is an endearing posture. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of love and affection. But more than that also, it is a sign of a pupil, a student at the feet 
of the teacher. You remember the Apostle Paul said that he learned at the feet of Gamaliel, that great Pharisee. She's at the feet of the Lord, and no doubt Martha has brought her back and said, the teacher wants to come and see you. Come, come, come. But this is the interesting thing. We're not told of a single word spoken from the lips of Jesus to Martha, to Mary. We're told of what he says to Martha. But here you've got Mary who comes and not a single, not a single word spoken from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ to Mary. If this encounter was not a summary and this is all that took place, do we conclude that Mary was not taught by God because Jesus didn't speak to her? Can we conclude that? Was she not also sorrowful? Was she not also in grief? Was she not also afflicted by the pain of losing her own brother? Did, did she not also need consul? Comfort? Was Jesus not aware of her great need in the moment as he was aware of the great need of Martha and gave her what she and her heart needed in the moment? Was he not aware of the great need of Mary in the moment? Beloved brothers and sisters, if that's what you're thinking, you are on the wrong page. Because although Jesus did not utter a single word, he taught Mary some incredible truths. And he taught her exactly what she needed to hear. Truth that wasn't actually spoken with words. Truth spoken with his own tears. Mary's in great pain. The turmoil of her heart and her mind. What's running through a a person who's just lost a loved one is... It's difficult. She'd come to the Lord, and when she came, her first words, you remember, were exactly the same as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A mix of complaint, perhaps, but also, as I said a few weeks ago, when we addressed Martha's words, and I'm not going to do them again this evening, there is faith in her words. There is faith in her words. But a faith that needs to be strengthened by our Lord, he will. Her tears flowing from her cheeks. And at the same time, her followers, we're told, not only is she weeping, but those who followed her, those who came out of the home with her, they're also weeping, we're told. And then we're told these words. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the, the, the description given by the apostle of the disposition of the heart of our Lord in verse 33 is, is not one of little impact, right? Look at those descriptive words. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is major disturbance. This is major uh, uh, stirring up within the soul of our Lord. Something major is taking place. There's no minor emotion. This Jesus is deeply moved, we're told. He's greatly troubled. Something serious is going on inside our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why was Jesus deeply moved and greatly troubled, you might ask? Why has this scene of death and mourning and weeping affected our Lord so deeply? Mary arrived with a swarm of others. We know that. She was weeping and so were they, maybe even wailing. In this day, we know that there could have been even professional mourners. It was, it was uh, expected by even the, the poorest of people in this day to hire 
professional one or two or three professional mourners who would mourn and sing dirges and play flutes and that would appeal to people's emotions is real emotions because someone has really died and, and someone has, has, has passed and, and there's really people hurting but what they would do is just try to prolong the emotion through professional mourning and other things to elicit the, the, the emotion into the situation. But the truth of the matter is, there's real pain in that place. Mary and Martha, they've lost, they've lost their brother. This is real sorrow. This is real grief. Their loved one is gone. No more to be seen in this age. The pain of separation, beloved. The indiscriminate hand of death that comes barging in one's door. He comes uninvited and robs loved ones of their husbands. Death robs loved ones of their wives, parents of their sons and daughters, robs people of their mothers and their fathers, robs people of their sisters, and as in this case, their brothers. Death is not a respecter of persons. No matter the financial status, no matter the position, no matter the prestige, no matter how much money you have in your bank, how good your health is, your age, your sex, your, your color, it doesn't matter. Death's long arm will reach all and often it reaches those who least expect it. Death creates separation and all too often it comes with a great deal of suffering far more difficult than most can bear. Having to live the rest of one's life in this age without the company of the one they love so dearly. That's painful. Is Jesus deeply moved and greatly troubled in the words we've been given in the same way as the rest? Is this the reason why Jesus is deeply moved? Because the rest are mourning, the rest are weeping. Is Jesus weeping? For the same reason, because he'll miss Lazarus like the rest? Beloved, your answer has to be no at this stage. If the tears of our Lord were shed because he'd miss Lazarus in the same sense of these people who think at this stage they'll never see him again in this age, then the tears of our Lord would actually be disingenuous. Because Jesus knew from the very beginning that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why, before he even made the trek over to Bethany, when he got news that Lazarus is ill, you remember what he said. This will not end in death. In other words, death will not have the final say in this whole situation. But rather it is for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. And he goes on to say in verse 5 and 6 in John chapter 11, that it is also because he loves Mary and Martha. That he'll edify them, strengthen their faith through this, through this process. It was only going to be a matter of time, not hours, minutes, not hours, before our Lord raises Lazarus from the dead. He knew that from the beginning. And it's not the resurrection that Martha assumed in the last day, but rather right now, in a few minutes, he's going to go to the tomb and raise raise him from the dead our Lord was not deeply moved and greatly troubled because he'd miss Lazarus because he'll miss his company like others were deeply grieved likely in an hour or two he'll be sitting on a table probably having a meal with him 
our Lord's internal disposition and the tears that flowed down his cheeks were not the same nature as the rest that were there. In fact, John wants us to see this. Because the word he uses, and he gives us a hint, I think, in the original, we don't see it so much in the English, but the word he uses for Jesus weeping is actually a completely different word that's used throughout the chapter for others who are weeping. Not even the same roots. It's a subtle hint, I believe, to affirm that the nature of our Lord's tears are actually different than that of the others who are weeping right there. The audience witnessing the whole ordeal had yet to grasp this reality. I know for sure because of what is written in verse 36. In response to our Lord's tears, we were told, So the Jews said, See how he loved him? So, so true, Jesus did love Lazarus. But his tears right now were not because he loved Lazarus. It's not because he's parting from Lazarus or Lazarus has parted from him. That's not why Jesus is weeping. That's not why tears are flowing down his eyes. Jesus' tears are flowing down his eyes because he loved the sisters of Lazarus. The tears that are flowing down Jesus' eyes is because he loved those who were mourning. Lazarus is dead. The ones he loves who are afflicted in this moment. The ones he loves who are grieved in this moment. The one he loves who are in pain right now. Our Lord's tears, at least in part, are from a loving, compassionate, sympathetic, good shepherd whose heart is broken over the sorrow and grief of his sheep. God in flesh, demonstrating his own heart a heart that is so intimately identified with the pain and the suffering of his own people. Oh, don't miss that point. He's a savior who bears our grief and carries our sorrows. Heard those words? Isaiah 53. He's a tender-hearted, great high priest, good shepherd, God in flesh, who became acquainted with sorrow and is able to sympathize in our weakness. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Beloved brothers and sisters, have you ever uttered the words, no one knows what I'm going through? Have you ever been in that dark place where you thought to yourself, no one cares? No one cares. No one knows what I'm going through. Have you ever experienced that sort of self-pity? I have. Let me tell you, there is one who cares. His name is Jesus. He's not indifferent to your pain or mine. Even though he knows the affliction of these girls and those who are mourning that he loves is a momentary affliction that will pass in in a matter of minutes. In a matter of minutes, he's going to bring them out of their misery, out of their sorrow, out of the pain. Whatever affliction you're going through, whatever pain, whatever grief, whatever sorrow you're going through as well, it may not be a matter of minutes, but it is momentary. You know how I know this. Because the Bible tells us That this life is like a mist, but eternity is a long time. And I know for sure there is no grief, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering, there's no tears, and there is no death in eternity. 
because every one of your tears and mine, beloved, will be wiped. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, will be wiped from our eyes in eternity. His heart is broken over those that he loves and he bears and he bears their sorrow and he bears their grief. You may think you are alone, but you are not alone. You see, Martha needed doctrine. Martha needed Jesus to take her mind and hope away from, from something that will come in the future, the resurrection, although we derive some hope in the promises of God, as I said the other week. But he needed to bring that because Jesus, the good shepherd, knows where her heart is. He knows what she needs. She needs not only doctrine, but she needs doctrine that points her to him. Martha, that won't take place unless you believe in me. Martha, that won't take place unless I am the resurrection, unless I am the life, that life that you want, the, 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 the relief and the comfort from your sorrow, Martha, will come through me. And so Jesus says to her, do you believe? Because that's what Martha needed. Mary, Mary needed to know that she's not alone. Without a word from his mouth and her at his feet, Jesus weeps. You're not alone, Mary. There's one who is with you. He knows. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. The person sitting next to you may not need what you need right now. But he knows. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He's so intimate with his people. You remember the Apostle Paul? Before he became the Apostle Paul, known as Saul, he was on his way on the road to Damascus and was heading to persecute the church. And on the way, he has a massive encounter with the resurrected Savior. You remember the, the encounter. Do you remember how Jesus introduces himself? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? How was Saul persecuting Jesus? He's a resurrected Savior. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his saints. How are they, how is Saul and his men going to Damascus to, to with violent or, or murderous threats to put Christians in prison and even to kill them? How is he persecuting Jesus? Jesus is so closely identified with his people that you persecute one of mine, you persecute me. Your pain is my pain, is what Jesus is saying. Your sorrow is my sorrow, is what Jesus is saying. He's so intimate with his people. Beloved brothers and sisters, never for a moment think that you're alone or no one knows what you're going through. There is someone who knows more about what you're going through than what you know you're going through. And he's intimate, he's bearing your He's bearing your sorrow and your grief. He's carrying it. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Do you believe it? You're not alone and He's not indifferent to your plight. He's not indifferent to your suffering. Glorious truth. Our Lord sympathizes with His people. And without even saying a word, I believe he says all that he needs to say to Mary. <laughs> With those tears that are running down his cheeks. But there's more going on here. There's much more going on here in verse 33. 
In particular, I want us to look at those words, deeply moved in the spirit. Other translations maybe that you have in your, in your laps would say groaned in the spirit. To suggest something like deep in the spirit, probably you mean the same thing. We've heard those words before. I mean, often we've heard that Jesus was grieved in the spirit and we've heard that he was greatly troubled. This is not new to our ears. We've heard those words before, but I can tell you only twice have those words been interpreted in our English Bibles from the root word that is written here and both times in verse 33 and verse 38 in John chapter 11 that is before us. You see, the word here that is translated deeply moved in the spirit is only used five times in the New Testament and it literally means to snort, like a horse snorts. When the horse is angry, he snorts. It's used three other times in the New Testament. One occasion, I believe, brings out the, 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 the clarity of of what this word actually means. I mean, when you read deeply moved in the spirit, you, you know he's moved. Something major is taking place, but, but what way is he moved? So, 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 so in, in, in Mark chapter 14, there's three other uh, places where that word is used. In Mark chapter 14, I think that gives us clarity to what, what's going on here. There you might remember the passage where, where Mary, in fact, the Mary in this text... Mary and Martha, it's Mary who comes to Jesus with a a flask, an alabaster flask, with some very expensive nard on the inside. She breaks the flask and she pours it over the head of Jesus Christ to anoint him. The contents of the flask is almost one year's worth of wages. And you can imagine the response and the reaction of some who were there who were in absolute disgust. Actually, the text tells us they were indignant. Indignant. And they scolded the woman. Her name is not written in Mark. We know of the account in John chapter 12. It's the same Mary. But it says they scolded the woman because they were indignant. They were angry. That's the same term used here that's been described or interpreted deeply moved in the spirit. I submit to you, beloved, that Jesus was indignant. That Jesus here in Bethany, upon seeing this this whole scene of of death and weeping and and mourning, that that he was indignant, that he was angered, that that there was a, a righteous fury coming from within him. It makes sense when you think of snorting being, as I said earlier, from from a horse. That's the literal word here. Jesus is beyond being deeply moved. Jesus is angry. But what's Jesus angry at? Why is Jesus so indignant? There's so many things happening in this text. Why is Jesus so indignant? What is it in this setting that has made Jesus so indignant? So outraged at what he's experiencing? Well, we know he's not angry at Mary and Martha. He loves those girls. And even when they come with what seems to be a complaint, he's so gracious towards them. There's no rebuking of these girls. He's sympathetic. He's compassionate. He's not angry at Mary and Martha. Who else is there? The the mourners, the the crowd, those who are weeping, who came with Mary. Is he angry at them? Well, we're told that Jesus weeps with those who weep and... He mourns with those who mourns. 
There's no hint in the text that he's angry with them. I mean, there are Jews there and they are hypocritical in the other Gospels, but you don't really get a hint or sense that the Gospel according to John points, makes that point with the Jews. Yes, they are harsh and unfair, but the hypocrisy is more in the other synoptics. So why is Jesus so indignant? Well, Jesus is not indignant with those who weep, but I believe he's indignant at the cause of their weeping. I don't think he's indignant at the weeping itself, the mourning itself, the wailing possibly. He's not indignant at that. But Jesus is indignant. He's outraged. He's furious at the cause of that weeping. I believe Jesus is indignant at the consequences of sin. I believe Jesus is indignant with death. He's indignant with the misery and the pain and the suffering that death has brought upon those that he loves. Remember, he is the one who bears the grief and the sorrow of the one. So whatever you're going through, he goes through. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it is to bear that grief and sorrow. He knows what his people are going through. He knows when they're weeping and mourning, what is the result, what is the cause of the weeping. And he's indignant at that. Jesus is angered at sin and he's angered at the consequence of sin being death. In a word, Jesus is indignant at that great enemy, the last enemy, death. What once was very good, beaming with light and life, the very creation that he created, the man that he created, The place of joy and blessing and bliss and glory due to sin and rebellion of man has become darkness and death. Joy has been replaced with sorrow. Delight has been replaced with grief. Blessing has been replaced with a curse. Life has been replaced with death. This is our reality, beloved. This is the world we live in. What was meant for good? Man corrupted with evil. And Jesus now, I believe, is experiencing a righteous fury at sin and death. He was angered before, if you remember, when he went into his father's home and he saw the traitors, a house that was meant for prayer, he says, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. God's intention for his home is holy. You've made it unholy, unclean. What God intended for his creatures and the creation that he made was to worship him in holiness, in righteousness, in true knowledge. And mankind in his rebellion has broken the relationship he had with God and brought himself under the condemnation of God and brought corruption onto all creation. And Jesus is indignant because the result of that is death. And his people that he's loved from eternity past And they're suffering in pain because of that death. And he feels it with them. Jesus is indignant with death. He's greatly troubled. He's deeply moved. Even unto tears. Three times it's recorded for us that Jesus wept. Three times. Three times. And all three are associated with the effects of sin. The necessity of judgment and ultimately death. Three times in the Gospels. 
I know your minds are clicking now and you're thinking, what are those three times? Let me give them to you first. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not know the time of visitation. He weeps over Jerusalem because she rejected in her sin the Savior and now calamity and death and judgment will come and befall her. Number two. Jesus at Gethsemane in that garden when he prays, he weeps there. We're told drop, great drops like blood fell off his head there in Matthew 26, Mark 14 and Luke 22 and even in John chapter 18. They give collections, they give different emphases, different perspectives, but it's the same event. Neither of those in the Gospels tell us that Jesus wept in, in, in that garden, but we're told in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus wept. And he gave a loud cry, with loud cries. He's, he says here, with, with drops of blood, with tears and loud cries, he made supplication to the Lord. Why was he in such anguish? Why were those drops falling off his forehead? Why was he weeping? You remember what Jesus was praying about? You remember the cup that he needed to drink? The cup of judgment, the cup that is the result of sin and rebellion of mankind that he would need to drink in his absolute fullness to bear the wrath of God upon that cross not only the physical pain but to bear the wrath and the righteous indignation of God upon sinners that he would have to bear that upon the cross bear the punishment upon the cross bear the death upon the cross as a substitute on behalf of his people Jesus wept And the third time in the Gospels we're told that Jesus wept is here in John chapter 11. Yes, because of misery and the pain of the suffering that his people are going through. Because death has entered into the world as a result of sin. On every occasion we're told the Lord wept sin, judgment and ultimately death is in view. And our Lord is righteously indignant, outraged in his heart. And even moved with tears. The Jews didn't get it. Look at verse 37. You might see it there. I want you to see how far away the the ways of God, and I'm almost done, are from the ways of men. Verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Interesting words. Likely they're thinking that Jesus' tears are due to the loss of Lazarus. Just earlier they said that he loved, oh, how he loved Lazarus, how he loved this man. And they're thinking, so Jesus is weeping right now. His tears are flowing down his cheeks. Jesus, this could have been unavoidable. Your tears are unnecessary. You have the power. Why, we already know of that indisputable miracle that you performed only recently, whereby you brought sight to a man who had been born blind. Initially, everyone was rejecting it, but it came to the point where you can no longer reject that truth. And it was made known to everyone that this man who was born blind back in chapter 9, Jesus, 
Jesus had brought him sight. Would not the same Jesus have been able to bring back Lazarus? Who was deathly ill. Would he have not been able to heal Lazarus? Yes. The answer is absolutely, absolutely yes. He could have. But he didn't. That's the point. He could have, but he didn't. They're thinking this could have been uh, 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 prevented. The, the, the tears of Christ, the death of Lazarus, it could, have been, it could have been completely prevented, Jesus. The outcome could have been much better than what it is. Death could have been avoided, is what they're thinking. You don't have to weep, Jesus. Death didn't need to occur. Would the outcome not have been better if death and tears were prevented? That's their thinking. If you only healed Lazarus? Yes, Jesus did have the power to heal Lazarus. But let me ask you, would that have been a better outcome? Ask yourself, would that have been a better outcome? That Lazarus was healed and none of this took place. Would that have been a better outcome? Or is suffering necessary? This is what the world doesn't want to hear. This is what these Jews don't want to hear. Jesus, your tears are coming down. Death is happening. This shouldn't have happened. You could have, you could have stopped this from happening. Suffering is no good. This is what, what we believe. But it's in God's plan that we suffer. We don't put our hands up and say, Lord, bring it on. No. No, that would be foolish. But does He not sanctify us through suffering? Is He not our example in suffering? Could he have brought the glory to God in any other way? Could these girls be strengthened in their faith as he is now and then he will once he brings Lazarus from the dead? Would Jesus be known in the fullness of him being the resurrection and the life apart from him raising Lazarus from the dead? He is that. But the decree of God was that this would go and take place the way it took place. That this is the path that Jesus will take. These are the events that will take place. And the ways of man are not like the ways of God. We think about this and we say, oh, 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 how can we prevent suffering and hardship? We take the path of least resistance. When sometimes the Lord says, no, I'm going to take you through the valley. And you're going to feel some of the thorns. But you ought to know, I will be with you every step of the way and when you get pricked I will feel it and when you experience sorrow I will be sorrowful for you your grief I will experience that grief I know I can sympathize with you I've been there I've gone down that path and I promise I'll lead you home I promise I'll lead you home Jesus wept Beloved, not only did he sympathize with his people, but he was also indignant at the cause of their pain and their suffering. Let me ask you something. What good is it if someone comes alongside you and says it's okay, but then can do no more? What good is it if I come alongside you and say, don't worry, things are going to turn out well, but I can't guarantee it. 
What good is it if I come alongside you and try to, to, to boost your morale when you're in that dark place because I love you and I don't want to see you in that place and I just come up to you and say, it's okay, you'll get a better job. It's okay, you'll find a, a, a better house. It's a, all these things. What is, what's the use of that when my words have no power? He knew what Mary needed, Martha needed, and he gave her what she needed, what her heart needed as the good shepherd. And he fed her soul. He knew what Mary needed. And he gave Mary what her heart needed. And he fed her soul. Here's the thing. He is the resurrection and the life. And everyone in this room has a great need. And he knows what that need is. He knows what the greatest need of his people is. And it's this. You are estranged, alienated from the life of God, dead in your transgression and your sin. And this Jesus can do something about it. And this Jesus has done something about it. He will be met with opposition every step of the way. The Jews said, could you not have healed Lazarus and avoided the death, avoided the tears? Could you not have done this, that or the other? His opposition will even come in the way of his own disciples. And I'm not talking about Judas Iscariot. Because when Jesus says those glorious words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, after, after they declare through Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. After they declared that, and Jesus then reveals to them that he needs to suffer and die and be taken, handed over to the scribes and the leaders, and he will have to die and be buried. And three days later, he'll rise. You remember Peter's reaction to Jesus? He rebuked the Lord. And Jesus is saying, hold on. This is absolutely necessary that I die, because unless I die, you won't live. Unless I, I weep in that garden... Unless I weep, unless I die, you won't live. I weep so you don't have to weep. I'll bear the wrath of God so that you don't have to bear the wrath of God. And when when Peter said, no, Lord, and he rebuked the Lord, you remember what Jesus said? He says to Peter these words, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for you are setting your mind not in things of God, but of man. You see, the ways of man is to is to side skirt any suffering or any difficult paths, but the, the path of the Lord is for your own good and mine. It's for His glory. The question is, do we believe Him? Will we trust in Him? Will we set our hope in Him? Will we find comfort in Him? Are we going to rest in the Lord? Because your greatest need and mine, you cannot fulfill only he has fulfilled and he's done it through the path of suffering that you and I cannot even begin to imagine and he bore that suffering he bore your sins Christian upon that cross he bore the wrath of God upon that cross he bore the curse upon that cross the shame upon that cross and he did it vicariously substitution in it as a substitution on behalf of sinners like you and I who come to trust in him this good shepherd knows what you want trust him let's pray